0: I wanna welcome everyone to the second episode of Prisma Podcast Live. My name is Elliot Rabin and I am Prisma's Director of Thought Leadership. This program gives a platform for people to learn in depth about innovative initiatives at work in Jewish day schools. We're going to start with a presentation about the featured program, continue with the conversation exploring the program and its wider implications and end by fielding questions from the audience. For today's second episode, we are delighted to welcome Rebecca Ritter, a founder and head of teaching and learning at the Sheffa School, a Jewish day school for students with dyslexia and other language-based learning disabilities in New York City. Rebecca's talk is titled, An Innovative Model for Teacher Training, The School as a Teaching Hospital. She will be presenting the Sheffa Teacher Residency, a program designed to address the challenges of teacher shortages, and inadequate preparation for beginning teachers. After her presentation, Rebecca will be joined by Josh Gold, who is the principal at the Hafter Middle School in Lawrence, New York, and the host of Prisma's podcast series, Startup Day School. I now hand it over to Rebecca Ritter.
1: Thank you, Elliot, Um, and thanks everyone at Prisma here. Um, and thanks for those of you who are joining us today and those of you who will be listening later. I know that um, these are certainly hectic days in school buildings right now. Um, And so, you know, appreciate appreciate you being here. Uh, Today, I'm gonna be sharing a little bit about um, the Shefa Teacher Residency, which um, as Elliot mentioned, is a school-based training program for novice teachers. And um, Everyone knows that, especially now more than ever, um, finding strong teachers is a tremendous challenge. Um, One of the most pressing challenges that school leaders face. Um, And today I'm gonna share one approach that we took at Shefa toward addressing that challenge. So just to give you a sense of where we're going here today, I'm gonna do three things. I'm gonna start off by giving you a little bit of a background about the Shefa School, um, who we are and some context. Then I will tell you a little bit about the origins of our teacher residency and how it came to be. Um, And then I'll dig into the components of the residency and how it's executed. So let's start with a little bit about Shefa. For those of you who um, are not familiar with us, um, we're a small, relatively new school. Um, in New York City. We're a pluralistic Jewish day school in Manhattan, and we specialize specifically in serving students with diagnosed language-based learning disabilities. Um, So that's primarily dyslexia or language impairment, um, high overlap with ADHD and executive functioning challenges, um, really students who are struggling to reach their full potential in mainstream classrooms. We opened in 2014 with just 24 students. We now serve 200 students in grades one through eight um, and are expanding every year. Um, And we have a really diverse student body, geographically, socioeconomically, religiously. Um, Our students come from all five boroughs, from Westchester, from New Jersey um, and Long Island. And really the only common denominator truthfully is that their families all care about a Jewish education and their families um, have all learned that their children um, have different learning needs that were not being met in mainstream schools. Um, And our mission is really to remediate students skills so that they can be prepared to return successfully to mainstream settings um, for middle school and high school and beyond. And because of the nature of our model, students enroll at every grade level and then they can leave at every grade level. Um, One of the sort of ironies of our school is that in order to be admitted to the Shefa school, you have to be getting bad grades, for the most part. Um, And then once you start getting good grades here at Shefa, we ask you to leave. Um, So it's a little bit of a counterintuitive model. Um, But we we really we opened because there was an unmet need in the community um, sort of that existed at the nexus between traditional Jewish day schools and specialized Um, special ed schools in the secular world. And so we sought to offer families kind of a new choice that would merge these two, that would provide sort of research-based, highly specialized instruction for this population of students um, that also creates deep and meaningful connections to to Jewish community, to Jewish learning, and to Jewish life. Um, A little bit of sort of about some of the things that make us unique um, in terms of sort of uh, our numbers, so our students at Shefa come, of the 200 students, they come from 72 different schools across the tri-state area. So that gives you a sense of the, the level of diversity here. Um, 95% of our eighth grade graduates mainstream for high school. Um, our students spend 120 minutes daily in small group language arts instruction. So that's t- that's two hours on English reading and writing every day. Um, and our professional development per school year hours um, for new faculty total 265 hours. So just to give you a sense of kind of the context of our school, because I think it's, it's sort of helpful in understanding um, the groundwork for how we um, developed the teacher residency. Um, and a little bit about our outreach arm. So we have the Shefa School, um, but we also have the Shefa Center, which is a hub for professional development and training and consultation to help Jewish day schools really better build their skill sets and their toolboxes for meeting the needs of the diverse learners that exist in all of our schools, right? So we have. Um, over the last eight years developed a number of different programs to support um, and empower Jewish day school educators um, to better meet the needs of these students. Um, Some of our kind of current Offerings right now, um, and if you're interested, do feel, please please feel free to reach out. Um, we have a multi we have multi day summer institutes which we've run over the past four years. They focus on sort of different subject areas um, and on just kind of differentiating instruction generally. So we've had um, about 260 participants in those workshops. Um, we've had about 360 participants in just last year, and what was a very tumultuous year in our webinar series where we, um, where we provided a series of six webinars um, in partnership with the UJA of New York to help support teachers and administrators around distance learning for students with learning challenges. Um, we have 52 schools mostly in the tri-state area that participate in our day school collaboration group, which is a group that we facilitate um, monthly or every other month that convenes to talk about and share best practices around meeting the needs of students with learning challenges and everything that sort of comes along with that. Um, and there are thus far been 18 schools that have requested kind of ongoing customized consultation and support from us, um, where we design individual workshops for them, where we work with their school leaders on um, challenges that they're facing within their schools related to serving their students with needs. Um, so I hope that all kind of helps at this stage and sort of contextualize the setting in which this teacher residency was developed because I really think our emphasis on adult learning here is a huge part of our school culture. um, And it really laid the groundwork for implementing the teacher residency. So let's talk about the teacher residency. How did it start? The impetus for developing this program really came from two main challenges that we were facing. The first challenge was finding talent. And I think this is a universally um, shared experience in schools regardless of the model or the population of students, especially if you're a specialized school. So if you're looking for a specific range of skill sets, either within special ed or within Jewish education, or if you, your school is located in a hard to reach area, um, the more specialized of a skill set you're looking for, the harder it is to find talent. And so we sort of took a different approach and said, well, if we can't, we can't find the teachers that we want to hire, let's think about how we can make the teachers we want to hire. Um, The second challenge that we faced is really that we know that people learn best by doing. And the research tells us that teachers who come out of graduate school are without really having any significant classroom-based experience are ill-equipped to handle the high stakes of a classroom. And In our environment in particular, there's definitely a sense of urgency to return students to mainstream settings. And so we really couldn't afford to hire inexperienced teachers who would need to spend a long time learning the ropes while they were also being head teachers in the classroom. Um, And we thought a lot about the medical field um, where you take coursework, but you're also learning by doing it, spending significant amount of time with hands-on experience. And when a new doctor is performing their first solo surgery, you really don't want that to be the first time they're holding a scalpel. And we thought of teaching really in the same way that learning by doing training models should be true for teachers. And so we developed this solution where we would try to create an in-house talent pipeline. So this idea that we would kind of have homegrown teachers for us in particular was important. For the past eight years, we've been growing um, every year our enrollment. And so we've and we will continue to do so. And so we've needed more and more teachers every year. And we really needed a pipeline of teachers that were steeped in our school culture and our instructional methodologies and sort of would have the runway to train on the job so that they would be prepared on day one of having their own classroom. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about how the residency works um, and the overall program design. So we start off with recruiting and hiring a small cohort of teacher residents each year, most of whom are between zero and four years out of college. And we hire them for a two-year experience. The residents must begin graduate school in special education by the beginning of the second year of that two-year experience. And over the course of those two years, they serve as full-time, essentially assistant teachers the role looks a little bit different than a than a traditional assistant teacher which I'll talk more about they're paired with a mentor teacher and they follow a very structured two-year scope and sequence of increasing responsibility and learning experience. So none of some of uh, some of the learning obviously that happens is incidental just by absorbing and being around master teachers, but it's really very intentional and structured in terms of what responsibilities we're giving them from September to October to November and so on, and what types of learning experiences they're participating in to support the taking on of those responsibilities. And then at the end of the two years, they're eligible to apply for a head teacher position at Shefa, or anywhere else should they choose to leave. Um, And we provide a $10,000 reimbursement stipend towards their graduate school as a kid education if they become head teachers at Shefa, So that's also a way to kind of incentivize retention here that we've invested so much in these teachers and now we want them to stay as head teachers at Shefa. So I'm gonna kind of take you through some of the specifics of the journey of a teacher resident, starting with how we recruit them, moving through sort of their roles and responsibilities and how it evolves, how we support them and then how they transition to a head teaching position. So obviously the first challenge that we face is finding these people um, and recruitment. So how do we find candidates? As I said, most of them are sort of straight out of college or a couple years out of college. They're looking often for a new community to belong to, um, often a Jewish community. And so we do extensive outreach and have built partnerships with organizations and institutions that work with young Jewish adults. And so Hillel's, um, local undergrad education programs, um, our local Yeshiva University here, Stern College is just four blocks away from our school, Um, local synagogue youth groups, camps, places that have traditionally attracted people who care about um, Jewish life and Jewish youth. Um, There is a tremendously high level of investment that we put in these residents, And I really can't stress that enough, because the hiring is really, really critical on the front end, you want to try to screen for the qualities that are going to make the candidates successful in the program, so that the investment that you're putting in um, is worthwhile, really. And so the hiring stage and finding the right matches is really critical. Over time, we've kind of built up a sense of sort of who the right candidates are for this program Um, and it really has nothing to do with level of experience in teaching. We find that there's actually no correlation between the success of our residents as they go through the program and their prior experience in education. Um, We sort of have identified these five predictors of success over the years in terms of what we're screening for in hiring. So the first is that we're looking for self-starters, people who can kind of take initiative of their own learning. The second is um, the ability to reflect and ask good questions is really critical. The third is that they've demonstrated in some other setting the ability to learn at a fast pace, that they can sort of have a trajectory that is rapid in their learning. The fourth is sort of this balance between humility and confidence that they are both, you know, know what they don't know, but also are willing to kind of jump in and take risks. Um, And then the last is sort of emotional intelligence, because in schools, you're navigating multiple relationships um, and thinking about both how you interact with children and how you interact with your adult colleagues. For many of our residents, this is their first real full-time job. And so those kind of professional responsibilities, how you interact with other adults um, is super important. Once we've hired the residents, we onboard them with a week-long training over the summer, um, along with the rest of all of our new faculty each year. Um, And they have time to get to know their mentor teacher. And we pair them really thoughtfully with a teacher with whom they spend most of their day that first year of the residency. So in that first year, um, there are a number of different responsibilities that the residents have. But primarily, really what they're doing is learning how to actively observe and actively assist and the keyword there is actively. So they're learning how to use structured observation forms to make observations that are based in data about classrooms. They're learning how to assist in strategic and planned ways um, in both one on one settings Um, and and small group settings and whole group settings. They're doing some individual teaching as well, really working off of their mentor teachers' plans and doing some one-on-one pulling of students who need more support or more enrichment um, or working with small groups of students. And as the year moves on, they're leading or co-teaching portions of lessons by the spring of that first year, they're planning and leading individual lessons and mini units. So it's kind of a structured, um, gradual release of responsibility. Um, of course, they're substitute teaching as needed, which this year more than ever um, is a key part of their role. Um, and they, we really delineate what their non-teaching responsibilities are as well, right? So they're not spending their entire day making copies, but we're very explicit about the fact that part of being a teacher is making copies and so if you're training to become a teacher you'll be doing some of those non-glamorous non-teaching responsibilities as well. In the second year the responsibilities really ramp up so the residents are lead teaching their own classes in one to two subject areas. Now all of our classes here at Shefa are relatively small um, so the The average class size for the groups that the residents are teaching are usually around five or six students. Um, but they're responsible for planning the curriculum and for executing all instruction in those subject areas for their group um, with support, obviously, as they're doing it in terms of coaching and mentoring. Um, But they're really the primary teacher for those groups, and they have a variety of co-teaching experiences. So along with their head teacher, they are taking on you know, individual lessons. They're splitting the class and teaching in two parts. Um, they're pulling small groups. They're really much more actively involved in the teaching. Whereas in the first year it was a lot more of observation and assisting. They have increased responsibility for lesson planning, for parent communication, um, for report writing. And then this spring they're eligible to apply for a head teaching position. Um, we go through a, an interview process. We have a rubric of things we evaluate them on um, and then, um, and then hopefully they become head teachers at Shefa, which most of them have. Um, the learning experiences that we sort of curate for them are really, really um, intentional and is really, I think, what makes the experience unique and different from just being a typical assistant teacher. So um, they have weekly meetings with um their cohort facilitated by me. Um, And those meetings follow a sequence of topics. We use different texts. Um, We do collaborative planning. They'll rehearse lessons that they're going to be teaching with their cohort. Um, They'll give each other feedback. Um, There's a real emphasis on reflecting. We really are very explicit about teaching our residents how to reflect both on what they're seeing in other teachers and on their own teaching. Um, and we really think about teaching as a science. What are the components that can be kind of codified and broken down? Um, and there's a tight correlation between the responsibilities that they have and the learning experiences that we provide. So for example, you know, if we're asking them to, uh, if we're learning in our residence meetings about introducing a new routine in the classroom and how you do that, and um, then their assignment for that week is going to be to introduce a new routine in the classroom, in their room, maybe take a videotape of it, and then do some reflection in our group about how that went. They also have biweekly one-on-one meetings with their supervisor and weekly meetings with their mentor teacher. So their mentor teacher is the teacher who's in the room with them. Um, their supervisor is the person who runs the residency program, which is me. And they get trained in all of our instructional programs that we use. There's observation and feedback that they get on their teaching. And then probably the highlight for many of our residents is that they have a tremendous amount of time spent observing and visiting other veteran teachers. And that's really important because they're seeing other teachers' styles. They're learning how to incorporate that into their own style. Um, at one point we do sort of, if anyone's familiar with the the, graze, the show Grey's Anatomy where you know the surgeons are in the OR and then there's kind of a gallery or a balcony above and um, residents are watching and learning how to do the surgery so we often will all the residents will go into the classroom of a veteran teacher and we'll do a group observation together of that lesson and then debrief what we saw afterwards Um, and so i want to just give you as we as we come to a close here um, a little bit about sort of um, some of the artifacts that we use here. These are just a few snapshots if you have if you have access to your video, um, you can see we have a scope and sequence of responsibilities that we build out. I'm just sharing this so you can see kind of, we break the year into three trimesters, and then there's sort of an increasing level of responsibility. And we're very explicit about what those responsibilities are. They're specific to our school, but we're, there's also a good amount of flexibility because every resident comes in with their own personality, their own strengths, their own background. And so with you know a cohort of five or six residents, we're able to be Um, flexible enough um, in the same way that we believe that students learn differently, adults learn differently as well. And so we can kind of be a little bit flexible with how we manage that for teachers. Um, This is is a list of the topics we cover in our residence meetings. Um, So we're using texts, we're doing practice, we're using protocols. this is an example of a reflection form that we have our teachers, our mentor teachers, and our teacher residents fill out, both self reflection and reflection on their um, from their mentor um, throughout the year. A couple of touch points throughout the year just to help set goals and to give a sense of progress within the program. And then finally, I just want to share with you, just so you can get a sense of the scale of the program and also our rates of retention. So since we started this program seven years. Ago, uh, we've had 30 residents who are trained in the program. Um, of those 30, 25 have become head teachers at SHEFA or are still in the two year training process and poised to become head teachers at SHEFA. The other five of that 30, um, graduated the residency program here and served as head teachers at Shefa for a number of years, but then relocated and are now serving in other Jewish day schools. Um, and we actually just yesterday did a focus group uh, with, with four of them to help us learn a little bit about how their skills from Shefa translated into um, kind of the schools that they're serving now. Um, And it was really, really, really gratifying to hear how much of their experience really informed the way that they teach in other schools as well. And then like any other program, we've had some attrition where four of our residents did not complete the program. They left after the first year because uh, they relocated or they were pursuing a related field like school psychology um, or general education, not special education. Um, And I wanna just close with um, a brief clip from what some of our former residents in this focus group yesterday had to say. So I'll just play that for you.
0: I mean, I I would not be the teacher that I am today if it wasn't for the residency program. I am forever indebted to them they taught me so much and I think they taught me so much more than I can actually verbalize.
2: Yeah I mean you're going to learn a ton and you're going to like work with some of the best people um and it's going to be just it's an
1: invaluable
2: Mm -hmm. amazing
1: program. So I think with that I'm going to turn it over to Josh.
2: All right well, not turning it over i'm joining uh, i want to thank you uh rebecca wonderful presentation thank you to uh, to prisma for allowing uh, us to have this platform this is an incredibly important program uh, that you're spearheading here and it's, uh, it's such a nice opportunity for other schools other leaders other uh, folks involved in school communities to be able to have an opportunity to learn about it so thank you again for uh, the time and preparation and the work that you're doing so I know that we've spoken before about our shared appreciation for the book uh, Instructional Rounds and uh, for those who don't know, Instructional Rounds is very much um, applying the medical rounding that's done in the medical field, applying that to educational settings um, so that teachers have an opportunity to learn from each other and with each other about best practices. Um, in the same way that when doctors do their medical rounds, they don't do it alone. There are others learning from them and with them when they do that. I also, my experience in school is that it requires potentially a cultural shift for teachers to be comfortable not only sharing their best practices, but having conversations around calibrating a school's expectations and norms for best practices. I'm wondering if there were cultural challenges that you faced in your introduction of this program, your development of this program about teachers feeling so comfortable opening their classrooms up and being that vulnerable to learn together?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a huge consideration for anyone thinking about setting something like this up. I mean, I think on the upside, having a program like this really elevates the quality of teaching and reflection for everyone, because the mentors now need to be thinking about their own practice in order to answer questions that the residents have. Um, And it just becomes sort of part of the language um, of talking about teaching and learning. Um, I will say we were in a little bit of a privileged position in that we began this program in our second year of existence as a school. Um, And as you heard me talk about the culture of our school in general, and the fact that we have an outreach arm that's dedicated to professional development and that sometimes we call on our in-house teachers um, to open up their classrooms to teachers from other schools. Um, just this morning, we actually had um, eight school teachers from eight different schools nationally zooming in to some of our math classes classrooms, um, to observe, um, as a follow-up to the math workshop that they participated in over the summer. So I think it really was intentionally designed as part of the culture of our school, but I agree with you, Josh, that it's, um, you know, everything about this requires a mindset shift that it's not, you know, I do my thing, I close my door, that's it, but that we're all kind of learners together and we're all on some sort of growth trajectory, whether you're, you know, just starting out or whether you're a mentor who's been doing this for 20 years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love it. And I think that uh, when you shared your framework uh, for predictors of who's going to be a successful resident, how did the team come up with identifying those predictors? Was it organic? Was it like we sat down and we made a list or did it like grow and develop over time?
1: Yeah. So I think one of, one of the, The benefits of of being a reflective school is that we're constantly looking at how we can be doing things better and evaluating things that we've been doing. And so, you know, we now have seven years of data. So we've looked at, okay, who were the most successful residents? What were some of the commonalities that they shared um, in terms of dispositions to learning? And I would say there's some research around this too. We're not the only residency program in the world. There's, you know, the Boston public schools have a teacher residency program. New York public schools have a teacher residency program. There are a couple of charter schools um, that I've been in touch with that have residency programs. I'm sure there are day schools that have, you know, versions of this. And so um, sort of, I think there's some consensus in the field too about what makes for an effective uh, learner uh,
2: when it comes to- That's a great point. So if I am someone who's maybe coming out of college or potentially a a strong emerging candidate for this program, what would you say would appeal to me? Why This opportunity would be appealing to me for what reasons if I'm coming out of college as an emerging educator?
1: Yeah, we've tried to hone that elevator pitch as much as possible because... (laughs) We really, you know, the success of the program does depend on the quality of applicants that we get, um, and over the years since we've developed a reputation, you know, friends of friends and people hear about it, and we've we've benefited from be- being able to attract some really high quality candidates. Um, but I would say one of the things that really appeals to young teachers is this idea that that um, that we're going to really invest in you, that you're not going to be just another cog in the wheel that's being asked to you know, cut out stars to decorate the classroom door, although you will be asked to do that as well. um, You're going to be someone who's really valued as part of the team. And there is a clear path to becoming a head teacher here. Um, And I think that's part of what incentivizes them. I think also, you know, young people now more than ever are really looking for a, for a sense of community and for belonging and for family. And this you know, provides that for them in a way that maybe college or camp or, you know, some undergraduate program provided for them previously.
2: I love that you lean into the community aspect of it, too. I think that schools could really learn a lesson from that. Do you find that the school's sort of explicit value in that aids the process of developing buy-in and vulnerability about your professional craft?
1: Yeah, I think that's huge. I think they see it, you know, the residents see their mentor teachers modeling that too. Um, because first of all, a lot of our lead teachers now have gone through the residency program um, and they're really bonded with their cohort. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there there's also this sense of like, um, sort of shared ownership and we lean on each other. And I think the residents see that modeled in, in the head teachers that they work with. Um, and so, yes, I think we absolutely do. That's a, that's a huge part of our culture that we, we value.
2: Are there, any, are there any other financial considerations or structures that you wanna discuss in terms of like, I know you mentioned that, I think you said it's a $10,000 graduate school investment if the teacher stays with you, correct? Are there any? Are there any other frameworks financially for how residents are compensated, or any other incentives uh, for even mentor teachers? Because I think that one thing—I mean, I, we could table this question for later—but we haven't discussed how much more work this might be for a mentor teacher. Um, how does that work?
1: So I'll answer the financial piece on the resident side first. Um, so it's not—it's not a hugely expensive program to run, especially if you already have a budget line item for any kind of assistant teacher role or position. It's just a matter of reframing how you think about that role. Um, And I would say funders are, have been interested um, in helping to support this program because it's this idea that you're investing in young talent and that you're helping kind of build a bench for staffing your school. Um, You know, the main, I would say the main cost of the program is sort of on the programmatic support and staffing side, right, of making sure you have the people who can who can run those meetings and design the program and support the residents. Um, as far as the mentor teachers, I would say one of the biggest lessons we've learned over the seven years um, is that not everyone, not every excellent teacher wants to be a mentor and not excellent every excellent teacher should be a mentor necessarily. Um, We sort of began with the assumption that, you know, we see ourselves as like a teaching hospital, and everybody should have a resident in their classroom. And we started with that when we were really small. But as we've scaled, um, what we have found is that, you know, if we have 20 classrooms, at any given time, really five, only five or six of them um, should have a resident. And so this year, we piloted Um, An initiative called the mentor teacher initiative, where we had teachers apply to become mentor teachers, um, and they went through uh, a week of summer training um, and they get ongoing mentor cohort meetings once a month where they learn skills mentoring skills, um, and it's been really, really successful thus far um, in terms of the level of investment that the mentors are putting into their residence. They also see that there's a huge payoff because having another person in your classroom is really helpful, and the more that you invest in those people, the more they can do for you and your students, right? So um, we did not tie it to financial compensation this year. That was a really intentional decision. Um, we It's the first year doing it, and we viewed it as sort of an opportunity for kind of leadership and prestige and that would be the reward. Um, I think we, could, we would reconsider that for future years, but there's there's always a tension between not wanting to sort of like, you know, commoditize every single thing that you're asking people to do in a school. Um, and um, I think we sort of wanted to say like, this is an important part of our culture and if you wanna be a part of it, great. And if not, that's okay too.
2: Right. And it sounds like you're a culture that really values intrinsic motivation as well in, in the sense that it enhances your culture. I think that um, it, it's, it's intrinsically motivated and it's altruistic, but it's also good for the school and it's good for it's good for everybody. Um, do you have guidance for a school who wants to start maybe exploring this as part of their practice? Right. Is there an order of operations that you would recommend? Is there a sort of like um, investment of learning about this before any kind of campaign rollout that you would that you would sort of advise um, for how schools should start to dip a toe in the water?
1: Yeah. Um, over the years, we've been approached by a couple of schools um, looking to start something like this, and um, I'm not sure where they landed, but um, I would say the most important thing probably is to know your program. Um, I think you need really to have kind of a clear and codifiable instructional vision for your school to be able to break it down into components and to be able to say like these are the things that make a successful teacher at our school and then work backwards from there these are the skills that we want to train our residents in and this is how we want to kind of focus the program. Um, I think I would start there I think starting small our first cohort of residents um, there were four of them. I think that's a really good number. Depends on the size of your school and your bandwidth as well. I think less than, I would not do it with less than three. Um, It just the the, the power of the cohort, I think is really helpful. Um, But I would say um, if you can find good people to do this program, it's worth trying for a year, honestly, just piloting it and seeing because we had so much success in our first year that it kind of caught on like wildfire. And we got a lot of applicants for the second year. And we, you know, parents were excited about it. And our faculty was excited about it. And organizations that we were partnering with were like sending us people. Um, So I would say, really trying it for a year. It's not, you know, the it's not really so much the cost, but I will say the quality of that first year is really important.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Are, so are, like, are there lessons that you've learned from what you've been doing over the past, is it seven years? Is that, is that that correct? In the past seven years, are there lessons that you've learned about strategically things maybe you would have done differently had you gone at it again?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what I said about, it's such a good question. What I said about the mentor teachers, I think is probably our, was probably our biggest learning. And now that I look back on it, I'm sort of like, how did we not think of that? Um, That was a silly assumption to make, but I think um, if we were to start over, we would have started with where we are now, which is, you know, the mentor teachers need kind of just as much training as the residents do that mentoring, you know, it's really on scale. And there are plenty of organizations that provide, you know, excellent um, coaching and support to mentors. So you could think about potentially partnering with one of those organizations. Um, We did it in-house just because of the specificity of, of how we wanted the mentoring relationship to look, um, but I think there's so much out there in the literature and in resources that I think investing in your mentors too is really critical, um, and it takes the burden a little bit more off of the person who's coordinating the program, right? So for me, this is one of fifty hats that I wear at the school, and. Um, you know, at this point, the program kind of runs itself and the mentors really sort of take ownership um, of helping support the growth of their residents. Um, And the second thing, I would say the second lesson learned is that I think we've sort of come to understand, this goes back to the hiring question, but like what's teachable and trainable um, and what is harder to teach and train, right? So what are those core skills that are, or dispositions that are less trainable Um, and how do you screen for those during hiring because you know it's going to be harder to teach once they're in the program.
2: Have you found teachers who have been mentors in the program given feedback about, we understand and we're trained in leading student development, student learning, understanding benchmarks, but leading adult learning is a different game, a different strategy, a different sort of like framework Have you gotten that kind of feedback and are there any resources or thought leaders who you would recommend to schools who have those same types of issues about teaching adults how to lead adult learning?
1: Yeah, I love that question. So, I mean, my background after teaching was in adult learning and um, I think that um, we've been able to be really successful this year in providing a curriculum to our mentor teachers that they find really, really enriching also because they opted into this program. where we're focused on, you know, adult learning, on active listening, on you know ways of giving feedback, um, resistance to change, um, and and there's there's a lot of you know literature out there. I particularly like um, Elena Aguilar's work. A G U I L A R is the last name mm-hmm. spelling. Um, she has a number of tools that we use for coaching schoolwide at our school. Um, but our mentor teachers use them as well. Um, and we do a lot of work with, with texts to help the residents, to help the mentor teachers um, kind of build their, their toolkits of understanding where their residents are coming from and how they can help move them forward.
2: That's excellent. Have there, besides lessons learned, have there been any like formal structural changes to the program in the past seven years? Like meaning like you, it was up and running, And you were identifying either something that wasn't working or something that could be working better, a problem of practice of some sort, and you made a shift as it was going. Have there been any changes along the road like that?
1: Yeah, there have been many. Um, I think each year the program gets better and better based on what we've learned. Um, I think the ways that um, I mean, sort of small tweaks in how we sequence responsibilities where we say, wow, it really made more sense for them to do this training before they had this, you know, responsibility or, um, kind of small flips of how we sequence learning, uh, for the residents. Um, I think we, we've had to do more explicit instruction on the front end on sort of, um, like workplace skills, which is something we didn't anticipate. So, right, many of these people are just coming out of college um, and those skills of, you know, how do you respond to an email and how do you show up to a meeting well-prepared? And, you know, what does it mean to come to a meeting without a writing utensil or something Mm -hmm. to take notes with? Um, All those things are things that we've just had to kind of explicitly say, you know, because this is often their first job and um, they need training in that just like in anything else. Um, And I would say the last thing maybe is that we had this vision um, that uh, now we have realized uh, humbly realize that it's not really feasible, but we had a vision at one point we were approached by a funder to try to scale the program really, really large and put a resident in every classroom and say every year we're going to, you know, every two years, we're going to kind of churn out 20 really well-trained special educators and then say goodbye to them and send them out into the country's Jewish day schools to help staff resource rooms and be learning specialists and all of this. And what we found really is that, first of all, um, not every classroom really should or could have a resident, despite you know how high quality our program is. There are classrooms, for whatever reason, that are more or less equipped to be able to mentor new teachers. Um, and then the second thing is we found that there was such a high level of investment that we were putting into our teacher residents that once they <laughs> finished the program, um, we did not want them to leave. We wanted them to be teachers here at Sheffa. Um, and there is, you know, there's, there's turnover. We're in right. New York City, so People have families, and then they move out to the suburbs, and they don't want to commute. Um, there's turnover for other reasons, um, and we've been growing as a school, so every year our enrollment has grown, um, and we're still growing. We're at 200 students, but our capacity is 325, so we've been growing responsibly kind of each year uh, by about 30 students, so we've always had openings um, for head teachers.
2: But no school would ever have enough openings to be able to support all of this- their residency, residents at full capacity, matriculating into a head teacher position, if they were at full capacity, I would
1: imagine, right? Well, I would, I would frame that a little bit differently and say, you know, think about what your needs are, right? If you have a hard time hiring um, science teachers, and you know, you're going to need another science teacher, maybe try to find a resident who's interested in science. Um, if you, you know, have, you um, you know, obviously this is a, a personal plug, but if you have, you know, students who have learning challenges and you have a learning specialist and they're kind of doing this all on their own and you really want to train a new special educator, or you want to think about, you know, an integrated co-teaching model, um, it's a really, really good way to think about what your staffing needs are and work backwards from there.
2: Right. Have you seen a, um, a qualitative Uh, enhancement of the instruction in classes that have a resident teacher versus a non-resident teacher who's an assistant?
1: Yes, I would say 100% because um, they have an eye towards becoming head teachers. And one of the things we haven't talked about is student outcomes, right? But we always say like, there's no reason you, you should never have an adult in the room that is not in some way or another servicing the students who are in the room, right? Like there's just no way of justifying that from a budget perspective. So there's always, um, you know, yes, there may be a time where the resident is explicitly instructed to be sitting in the back of the room and taking a transcript of what they hear their lead teacher saying. But for the most part, the teacher residents see their role in the classroom as actively helping to support the teaching and learning that's happening. Um, And so, yeah, I think the classrooms that have teacher residents have, have better outcomes for kids.
2: And it's interesting that you attributed it to the fact that they visualize themselves, or at least their ambitions are, that they are going to be a head teacher, and they're sort of on track for that, and that correlates to a stronger educational experience for the students. And I, I note that as we sort of wrap up here, because I think that I'm noticing in our series here uh, that uh, that Elliot Raven has uh, so thoughtfully been leading, that we're seeing schools who are positioning themselves as the innovators in these areas, as the schools who are really authentically positioning themselves as the incubators of professional learning, meaning that they are cultivating environments in which the faculty themselves are very forward and transparent about the fact that they are learners as well as students. And I think that schools that are taking a lead in those areas are really setting the bar uh, for other schools to learn from. And I think that that really is the driving value here. And I think the priority for schools, the more that you're able to set, not only um, communally and and by way of values, but by way of structure and formal partnerships and pipelines that everyone in this school is a learner, whether you're a student or a teacher or anybody, we are all learners together. And I think this is such a brilliant example of that and such a fruitful example of it. So uh, Rebecca, really thank you for your time. This has been extremely uh, educational. I think it's been very helpful. And I know that uh, so many schools, individuals, uh, school communities are gonna benefit from learning about this. And thank you again to Prisma for providing this opportunity and this platform.
0: Thank you, Josh. Uh, thank you for your, for your expert uh, questioning, really great. Um, so now is the time when we're going to field questions. From the audience, I already have a lot of great questions uh, that I want to share. So one uh, one question we've had is the kind of um, starts with the kind of astonishment that you've had room to uh, to bring on some twenty five of these residents to uh, to head teachers in a, a school that is you know medium to smallish, right? Um, I'm wondering how how that's possible and. Also, wondering how many of those teachers were in uh, Judaic studies.
1: Yeah, so yes, it is astonishing. and um, we have a pretty, you know, our, the ratio of our, our of our teachers to students is pretty high. So we you know have let's say one to four or one to five ratio here. And so um, there are a lot of, opportunities, especially as we grow, to have more people in head teaching positions. Um, In terms of the Judaic studies piece, um, that is often an area that is hardest for us to hire for. And from the outside, and so I would say the majority of our Judaic studies teachers are graduates of our residency, um, because of the unique way in which we teach Judaic studies here, both the pluralistic orientation, um, the impact of how we consider a second language, um, the, the massive massive range of background knowledge that our students come in with and how teachers differentiate for that, the role of text when kids can't read text. So there's a tremendous amount of um, thought that goes into the Judaic Studies curriculum and instruction here. Um, And we have found that for the most part, most of our most successful Judaic Studies teachers here have come through the residency. Great,
0: another question has to do with the qualifications of people who come in? You mentioned that uh, many of them, or perhaps most of them come in just with a, a BA or BS. Do, do any of them come in with, with more advanced degrees, such as a yes. uh, master's in special ed or other kind of degrees? And yes. if so, what do you feel that they, those people may still be missing when they, when they start out?
1: So, Yes, the answer is we do have people who come in to the residency program with a master's degree or they've already, you know, they're in process with a master's degree. Um, Sometimes the master's degree is in a related field. Sometimes it is in special ed. Um, I would say most of our teachers and our residents would say that what they learn here on the job is um, significantly more uh, useful in terms of their classroom instruction than what they learn in the classroom in grad school. Um, I think that's a function of this idea that it's easier to learn by doing, but also we serve such a particular subset of students here and special ed programs are really needing to address the wide range of what special ed means. Um, I think for for those candidates who come in with more uh, graduate coursework or with a degree, um, that's where we can really differentiate a little bit within the scope and sequence of the resident's responsibilities. Their learning trajectory might be faster. They may take on more sooner. Again, we tell our students everybody gets what they need. We do the same approach for our adult learners. Um, they also, they also will have a higher salary. So anybody who has um, a master's degree in our on our salary scale has a higher salary. Um, and so we can kind of differentiate in those ways.
0: Another question is um, about this uh, assistant teacher. So teacher residents, are they re- replacing? assistant teachers, do you not have assistant teachers besides the residents? Is it something in addition? How does that work?
1: So currently we don't have assistant teachers anymore. Um, We found that we have, um, We call them school aides. They were really a function of COVID actually, Um, but people who are just, you know, if there's a teacher who needs to teach on Zoom, they're just supervising the kids. Or if we have to put the kids in pods for lunch, they're supervising that. Um, We found that having someone here who doesn't see a growth path for themselves at the school um, was not a good investment. And so we don't right now have assistant teachers. Hmm.
0: Follow-up question to the one about Judaic studies instructors. So, sounds like the the training that people people get uh, in to become a Judaic uh, instructor or a rabbi often they don't have pedagogical training in many in many cases. Don't doesn't prepare them well for, for your school. Um, wondering. How do you create a curriculum, the Judaic studies curriculum in your school?
1: You have to invite me for another podcast. You have to invite our head of Judaic studies, Rabbi Laria, for that. Um, and It's a very involved process. It's, you know, we're, we're nowhere near the end. It's still evolving. Um, and I see Susan Yammer is on the call. We, we you know, we, we, we draw on the work of other places as well. Um, But it's, I would say the guiding principle of our Judaic studies program is how do we take what, how do we take the skills and techniques that we're teaching in the general studies um, and use them to teach the content in the Judaic studies. So in the same way that we're, let's say making a story map Uh, for a book in English, character setting, problem and solution, we're doing the same thing in Chumash, right? If we teach the students a way of taking notes in English, we're doing the same thing in Judaic studies. Um, If we're learning about how, you know, how to ask good questions, right? Obviously, Judaic studies lends itself very well to that. So there's a lot of kind of crossover and collaboration among our Judaic studies teachers and our general studies teachers. In our lower school, the Judaic studies teachers and the general studies teachers are one and the same. So our lower school head teachers teach both Judaic studies and general studies. and, uh, and, and the emphasis really for us is on the modes of instruction that our students are going to be able to access. Um, so it's really, really skill-based um, and less content-based.
0: I'm interested in your discussions with other schools because Shefa sees itself a little bit like Orla, not Goim, but Orla. <laughs> The Jewish day school. <laughs> I, don't
1: know, but I don't know. Maybe <laughs> um, one day. We're, we're, still, we're still getting there. I, I mean, I, what, what's your question, Elliot? <laughs> so
0: the question is, you know, have, have other schools, uh, especially in your work with the, the Sheffa Center and it's kind of a outreach and training for other schools, have schools, um, you know, looked to try to get advice about implementing something like this and, and um, you know, how, how much, how many, you know, how many questions, queries have you had and how do you work with them?
1: Are you, about the residency specifically? The
0: residency program, yeah.
1: Um, I would say like three or four schools have reached out specifically and I've had kind of extended conversations with them. Um, I think in terms of our work with other schools, it's primarily around how they can implement some of the instructional techniques that we're using here, how they can think about better serving the needs of their students who learn differently structurally in terms of the way they set up their program. Um, I think we're, we're in a very privileged position in that we have Privileged, And there's a huge responsibility that comes along with that and that we have like a really pure sample size of students right we have a very homogenous population here. All of our students have language based learning disabilities. They're each different and they're each unique and our teachers will still say, well, I have six students in my class and none of them are on the same level, even when they're on the exact same level. But really, every child is so different. And we look at things as such a fine tooth comb. But the truth is, most schools don't have that luxury. So we also see ourselves as, you know, this kind of um this, this lab where we can sort of test things on a on a whole school basis with a very homogenous population um, and then be able to kind of distill it down and say, okay, what are the things here that would work in a mainstream Jewish day school? What are the challenges? What are the potential implications? Um, and how can we sort of translate that for other educators?
0: Are there things that you think uh, day schools uh, couldn't replicate that you do?
1: Yeah, they could not replicate having an hour and twenty minutes every day of English language instruction. <laughs> when you have a dual language curriculum, especially, um, they don't need to, right? Most of their students don't need that. Some of them probably could benefit from it, but um, but yeah, I think that's definitely a challenge. Um, just finding the the way that we allocate instructional time, I would say, would be the hardest. That's the that's the thing we hear the most.
0: All right. All right. Thank you so much. This has been a real eye-opener. Your program really sounds so fascinating and and it provides a a really important model for for the field. And I'd be very interested to see if other schools uh, look to develop their own version of it along the way. So um, I want to encourage everyone uh, to come to our next PRISMA podcast live, which is taking place at this time, noon Eastern, um, on Tuesday, March 22nd, where we're going to hear Peg Sandell and Barbara Cohen of the Brandeis Marin School talk about a program they have called Story Force. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.